I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This is not a traditional politics show, except when friend of the pod Rick Wilson is on. I try to avoid kind of traditional punditizing And I like to think of this show as counter-programming to the kind of stuff you hear on cable news. And that is one reason we rarely have politicians on. The other reason we don't have a lot of elected officials on is they don't want to come on. (laughs) Um, A lot of them, most of them, are not up for the kinds of conversations we have on this show. This week, however, is different. Both my guests are politicians. Neither of them are very traditional. First up is Andrew Gillum, who you may remember from his run for governor of Florida. He is the former mayor of Tallahassee and arguably the most successful progressive candidate of 2018, even though he did lose that race. I interviewed him at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas, and we talked about race and that race and white liberals and how you can and can't Avoid talking about race when you're running a campaign. Second up is Shawnee Curry-Mitchell. She is running for district attorney in Monroe County in Rochester, New York. And I will tell you a little bit more about her right before her segment. But coming right up, Andrew Gillum. I will introduce my guest, Andrew Gillum. Hey, everybody. A list. He's a, a list of what? Of what I'm going to say about you. Oh, okay. All right. He's the former mayor of Tallahassee. True. He lost the Florida governor's race by 32,463 votes or 0.4%. <clears throat> um, this despite having turned helped turn out 2 million new voters in Florida. He was a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics this past spring. He has a new project, Forward Florida Action, which is to continue to help grow the Democratic base in Florida. And I am excited to talk to him. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So I was delighted to see in your bio that I read online that you described yourself when you were running a lot of the times as the only non-millionaire in the race. It's still true, although... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Although I'm not running, I'm still maybe the non-millionaire. Yeah. Well, I have numbers. Unless on, you are. No, okay. uh, only, we're two non-millionaires on the stage. Right. I'll tell you that. 
can all the millionaires in the house know? Um, Stand up. He's raising money, so that would be real helpful. Um, speaking of raising money, so I think people know in general that, that Congress and politics have become a haven for the super wealthy. I looked up the numbers. So there are 10 congressmen and three senators who have wealth over $43 million, which puts them in the top 0.1%. There are seven that have a net worth over $7.5 million. There are 153 congressmen and 50 senators who are millionaires. There are three governors who are billionaires. And at least seven who are millionaires, the count is still going. And in Florida, where this seems to be an especially bad problem, there are lots of millionaires that run for, for governor there. There are two of five lawmakers at the state level are millionaires. So- Tell me, Andrew Gillum, do we have a representative democracy? Oh, come on. <laughs> that is a, <laughs> that's a big, big, big question to, 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 to answer, but you all probably could, you know, draw your own conclusions about how representative it is when you consider that, take for instance, young people are uh, age uh, 18 to 35 are, I don't know, uh, 35% of the population, yet they're 4.8% of those in elected office. Uh, less than 5%. Probably not a lot of millionaires either. And probably yeah. not a lot of millionaires. And then obviously on the money thing, and I will tell you, I, I, I try not to necessarily begrudge people, you know, whatever their wealth is. Everybody I know, everybody I grew up with wants to be a millionaire and they think they will be one day. Um, mostly they just want to earn enough that they could pay their bills and maybe take a vacation every once in a while. And that should be okay. Um, but unfortunately, when you don't have a lived experience that I think exposes you to all of the challenges that keep you from being able to do that, it's hard to then see these people legislate in a way that then makes it possible for me to, you know, to, to experience the kind of success that they might, you know, say for themselves. And one of the things that would annoy me the most, you know, people would say, well, you didn't come from a wealthy home and your parents didn't go to college and, and yet you did it. And I'm like, when do we start creating legislation to the exception? <laughs> Rather, I was like, like, how is it that it is right. that you think, you know, that we're supposed to, um, you know, put this together in a way, put public policy together in a way that only benefits those who are the exception among us, right. rather than how you give everybody the same kind of launch pad and let them see where they, you know, they're able to take it. I was reading actually a profile of Elizabeth Warren um, who pointed out that, I guess she got some static at some point for apparently not liking rich people, but she's like, no, they're fine. Um, I sure. And, but what she said and pointed out was like, if you have wealthy people running things, it's just, it's not that they necessarily are acting out of malice. It's just, they don't see or understand the problems that other people have. Like, it's just normal. I, and so I wonder actually, like, what do you think would change? If you had a government that actually had folks there that had the diversity of lived experience, well, take AOC, for example, a woman who a year ago was a bartender. Um, does, you, know, you now get to see how it is that she is in Washington, D.C. talking about the issues uh, take, for instance, uh, in Ilhan Omar, who... She's, she's my representative. She's your representative. All right. Y'all give it up for Ilhan. Yeah, yeah uh, sure. 
She, um, when she ran, she actually pointed out she was the only candidate that had student loans. Okay. So, yeah. well, that's miraculous because everybody <laughs> I know has them. So, um, not um, people running for Congress. Well, that's exactly yeah. the point, right? So, when people, you know, run for off these offices and they actually are based and grounded, in, I think, something more real, um, um, something more everyday. Uh, they actually, when they end up in office, become, I think, really good, unapologetic, strong voices for those issues to help bridge it, help, you know, make it better. And again, the diversity of our democracy uh, and the reason why you need not just people of different uh, wealth experiences, but race experiences and cultural and religious or Mm -hmm. non-religious folks who come from urban, suburban and otherwise areas of our country um, for is, you know, not just obvious, which is, you know, we deserve to be represented, but also the public policy that you would hope flow from them um, are ones that create a bit of a leveling that create the opportunity for you, me and, and those like us to be able to, to ascend to wherever, you know, we choose in life. I also wonder if there's some benefit in the same way that benefit for representation in popular culture, which is it just changes the image of what's possible. It, it, without a doubt, I think that's probably one of the more um, you know obvious aspects of it, which is. Well, thanks. You, no, 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 no. I of me. I wasn't going to say of you. I, I, I was going to say of me. I mean, the truth is, all of us know. We remember that image of you know the little black boy touching Barack Obama's hair and saying, your hair is just like mine. And I think a lot of people underestimate like what that means. Um, I always share how, because of where I, um, you know, my mother and father didn't go to college and neither did any of my older siblings. I didn't really have a, college wasn't really on the path toward a destination. My dad used to tell me growing up that if I did well and stayed out of trouble, that one day I'd be able to go to the military. Um, and while I had nothing against the military, it didn't all the way necessarily sync with what I was sort of feeling inside. Um, and then this show came on called A Different World. You remember that show? I do. Okay. Yeah. So, some of us are younger, may, may or may not. Lisa uh, Bonet. Lisa Bonet, uh, also known as Whitley Gilbert. Yeah. Um, but, but for those who don't know about A Different World, A Different World was this, um, show that was a spinoff from the Cosby show when one of the older kids went away to college and And HBCU and HBCU, um, uh, known as Hillman college. Uh, well, Hillman college, um, uh, and HBCU was where I got my first inspiration to want to go to college. Um, I saw people who looked like me, who I wanted to one day be like, you know, they were smart. They were witty. You had Dwayne Wayne with the flip up shades (laughs) You know, Whitley Gilbert, I knew I was going to marry her one day. It was like... <laughs> Lenny Jaleesa, Kravitz got to her first. J- J- Lenny did. He yeah. wasn't in the show, though. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the, the, the point being, um, that show became transformational for me because it provided a North Star that, quite frankly, otherwise may not have existed, but for the likes of a different world. And so... We moved from Miami, which is where I grew up, to Gainesville, Florida, um, which is a little north of central Florida. And when I got there, you know, up to that point, I had matriculated and was in regular coursework pretty much all the way through my schooling. And then I got there at the end of my middle school year and my, I had this teacher, Miss Alexandria, and she said, you know, you're really bright. You, you, should, you should consider taking honors courses. And I was like, nah, you know, nobody had ever told me that before. And she persisted. 
and I resisted. And eventually, you know, she won over and I took, started taking those classes and I get to the high school and it was like, oh, well, you need to take AP courses. And I was like, okay, well, whatever that is. And so we enrolled in that. And then all the way through, I knew that all this stuff was putting me on a college bound track. And so when the SATs came around and on the SAT, at least back then, I don't know how they do it these days, but they used to oh, give you back a, then. You are how old? I'm 40. They, stuff has changed. <laughs> I'm telling you, a, a lot still has changed. If you look at these assessments, I don't know if I could pass the math test uh, on some of the assessments I see these days. But you, they used to have a Scantron in a book, coordinating book. And the book used to have a code for every college you wanted your SAT scores to be set. And so I started scouring this book and it is an alpha order and A, B, C, D, F, G, H's. And I'm H's like very scientifically. And there's no Hillman College. <laughs> <laughs> there is no Hillman oh, College in this You went this to book. all those honors courses and like somehow was that like, part no never came no, up. No, no, no. No, no, no. Exactly. Because this is about systems. We're talking about systems sure, of oppression right. here in yeah, some yeah. ways, right? Sure, sure we are. Didn't exist. And nobody decided to tell me this, even though I had not confessed to them that Hillman College was my choice. So, so maybe there's a little I bit of like... I didn't give up. Right. I went to the back... It was back based of, on Spellman. It was... No, right? no. People oh. would argue whether it was based on Spellman. Oh, okay. Some people think it was based on Howard. Some think it was on, on Hampton. I personally think it was based on FAMU, since that's what oh, I chose. Oh, I see how this is... I, we have the same <laughs> argument, and this is... It's so completely different. But where did you, where did Indiana Jones go to school? Somehow there's this weird thing where people are like, no, he went to my school. Anyway, sorry. Well, yeah. That's really different. It, it was probably, I just, it, it is different. <laughs> I, <laughs> either way, we're going to cut this I, part out. I will tell you, we went I'm so from, white. I'm so sorry. It's all good. We went from, <laughs> we went from not having Hillman in the eighth section to, me flipping the whole right. brochure over to the back of the book thinking, okay, it's a black school. Maybe it's, you know, at the back of the book. And uh, uh, no Hillman. <laughs> so, of course, I didn't stop there. I went to the guidance counselor to protest that I had a defective form. Um, and through that conversation, she informed me that Hillman was fictional. <laughs> And I started back at zero of where I was going to college, uh, uh, but eventually landed at Florida A&M University, which was the closest institution I could find that, re that reminded me of, of Hillman College. Right. <laughs> That's a long way to go. Okay, listen. Oh, no, 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 no. I no, actually no, no. love Let, this. this. I a, love this. That was a long way to go to get back around to seeing yourself reflected. I want to make sure we get back to that point, which was um, <laughs> um, the power of people being in Congress who look like you and share your lived experience, the power of people being governors and senators and city and county representatives is because not only do you hope that the legislation that flows from it better encompasses and reflect, reflects you, but that very physically, like that boy who touched Obama's head, um, that, oh my God, your hair is just like mine. Maybe one day I can do what you do too. I think people who are centered all the time and see themselves all the time have a really hard time understanding like what that can mean for someone. And I will confess, like, I don't think I can ever really, really know. I mean, I think there's something to it with women, obviously, but there is like the, the categories of non-centeredness when you start to get into into people of color, to trans people, queer people of any kind, then it's, you're seeing things like maybe for the first time in your life 
to see those people in power. It also helps to normalize, yeah. right? I mean, it, whatever that means. But it. So I sometimes think about the um, the fight for LGBTQ uh, rights. That that was one of the sort of movements that most people would say didn't happen as quick as it should, and I would agree. But when you consider it on the scale of of transformational moments in American history. Man, I tell you, people started saying my daughter's gay and my brother's gay and my wife is gay. And it's unfortunate that some people had to come to uh, offering equal rights to folks based off of their proximity to it. Um, I think there is something a little, you know, unfortunate about that, but it also is a human instinct. Um, And it's like, well, I don't want my brother hurt. Now I want my sister hurt um, or discriminated against. And so... Uh, I'm going to get out there and advocate for them as well. The, the ability to create a safe enough um, space, environment for people to be who they are when their differences are not as obvious as looking at them. Um, we got to create the opportunity for more of that to happen. And I think you'd see a lot of social change occur at a much quicker pace. I have a whole set of questions about how much hope we can have for the future. Let's just bookmark that. Okay. Because, wow, that that sounded like you think that can happen. I do. So that's cool. I, I do. Um, I do. <laughs> so not everything I'm going to ask you is about the governor's race, but I do have some, I think, pretty burning questions. Okay, I'm here. So it went to a recount. Uh, you were somewhat reluctant to concede. I think that's a safe description. Uh, I was... You were not going to do it until you really, they were like, this is the result. Uh, that th- This is the result. But moreover, I know that there were some 80 or so thousand votes that did get counted. And our point was count every vote. Okay. Well, that maybe you've, you've, a little spoiler alert for my next question. Uh-oh. Do you think you lost a fair election? Oh, so I. I Are you the rightful governor of Florida? Uh, That's no, my question. No, 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 no. I can't. <clears throat> Uh, <laughs> I could tell, I'll just call you governor yeah, the no, rest you of the interview. Look, you try to get me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> put a big stop sign up at the at the at the entry to Florida when I go home. Yeah. Um, um, I will say this: um, I ran the race for governor, understanding the rules that existed at the time, and these are rules that have been promulgated over a long period of time where. And my state Republicans have controlled leadership for 24 years. And since they've been in power, every single legislative session practically, they have figured out ways to make voting harder. Um, In black and in poorer communities, you see lines that are 30, 45, 50, an hour longer, even though the number of people voting in some of those places are far less than what you might experience in some of the white districts that move you in 15 minutes. And Florida Republicans went to criminalize voter registration. So before somebody could put out a clipboard and pass it around this room and we collect registrations um, or on their pews or in their neighborhood or amongst their students, um, Florida decided that if you wanted to become a register, register people to vote, you would become a registrar. You'd have to go to the state of Florida and get a number assigned to you so that when you go out and register, you have to put that number on the form. That form then had to be submitted within 72 hours of collection. And if it wasn't, you could be personally fined and prosecuted. Prosecuted. To make the case, they then prosecuted four black women who were school teachers 
who worked for the NAA, who were volunteers for the NAACP and had been collecting voter registration cards amongst their students in their community. The case was eventually dropped, but it's in a chilling effect. Who wants to risk being prosecuted? And so the League of Women Voters at the time, who was one of the largest non, you know, sort of uh, nonpartisan voter registration arms, decided they were going to wholesale pull out of registration in the state of Florida. When Barack Obama was on the ballot in 2008 in Florida, prior to some of these laws coming into place, Democrats outnumber Republicans by over 800,000 more Democrats than Republicans. Um, when I was on the ballot, then 10 short years later, that advantage shrank to 200, fewer than 250,000, and it continued its decline. We have a law called signature mismatch. And so if you signed your name and the W in your signature looked different than the one from the year prior or the one that they had on record, a non-trained person in signature forensics could decide that they would look at that signature and based off of their interpretation of its differences and validate your vote right there. The University of Florida conducted a study, and I'll stop. Oh, the University no. of Florida conducted a study that showed... Preach, I believe, is, is it some <laughs> uh, people say. Unfortunately, it's an unfortunate sermon. Yeah. But the truth is, is that uh, these are the kinds of laws that we've had to deal with that have created the kind of electoral outcomes that all of us now have to accept because this is what's on the books. It's a law that's on the book, but I would argue it's an unjust law and it's intended for one purpose and one purpose only to invalidate the votes of the people who you don't want voting. And to make that point crystal clear, the University of Florida conducted a study that showed a ballots that were rejected over signature mismatch. Seven out of 10 were from voters of color or young voters. Right. That was them. So, no, I will not claim to be the rightful governor of the state of Florida. Um, but under I will the say rules that, these are, that existed at the time. Which I agreed to and I ran under. Um, but I don't believe that those are fit, proper, and appropriate laws. And that's why I'm dedicating my time to see them changed. Well, this is all real shocking because Florida is just synonymous with, you know, fair elections. Well, you know. Um, so I'm sorry to hear all of that. Texas sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you all don't get away with it. Yep. Yeah. That actually, that, that chilling effect leads me to my next question, which I, I am white. Very white. Uh-uh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and this you're, was something I just... You were raised just, in Puerto Rico. <laughs> I was. Uh-huh. But, but you're white. <laughs> I mean, the glare off my legs is probably hurting people's <laughs> eyes. Um, and I, I bring that up um, because I had this really interesting experience about my privilege and around voting. When there was, a, I think it might've been around the midterms and I sent off a tweet that was along the lines of like, people fought and died for your vote, da, da, da. How dare you not vote? And some of my friends who are people of color pushed back on that, which I, I admit I was a little surprised by. I was like, but isn't this the thing that people fought and died for the vote? And they were like, yeah, but do you know how hard it is to vote? Do you know how much it feels like an empty action to go to the polls when you have to wait in line? Do you know how many people don't get the day off? Do you know how, I mean, it was an argument that I confess. I was like, oh yeah. I mean, to make an accusation about the weight of history against someone who has to feed their child yeah. is not a fair argument. And I think that might be something that a lot of white progressives miss. Yeah. Well, I, 
I'm going to come down slightly differently because I think all of that is true. Uh, but what is also true is that my forebearers did literally die. And our forebearers did literally face vicious dogs that two happy, jittery officers were prepared to unleash on them. And water hoses. And when we think about the Montgomery bus boycott and its success, you had an entire community, not just a few people. But in order for it to be successful, people who relied on the the public bus transportation as a means to making a way for themselves and their families had to make the decision for over a year to abandon those buses and walk to work miles, to walk their children to school, to put together community carpools so that the community would be okay. And it's not like everybody knows each other, right? Right. We're not all friends. Everybody, you know, everybody's, you know, it's like any community. I just want us to understand like how big it was for an entire group of people who were so sick and tired of being treated, not even like a second or third class citizen, but a transaction change in the, in the meter box, um, how much they had to go through. And so I am a fierce defender of making sure that we level the system so that we make it as easy for people to participate in our democracy as possible. That being said, if people are working out of, you know, going out of their way to disenfranchise you and to keep you from voting, they know something or at least they assume something about the impact of your power. So you don't give it away. Um, And that means what we have to do as a community is we've got to figure out, I think we've got to figure out, like we have to build a plane and fly it at the same time, right? Um, Just because it's wrong doesn't mean we don't participate in the process that unfortunately that we've got to go through in order to get the change that we seek. Um, and it may be warped for people. It's sort of similar to when Democrats say, you know, I, I hate super PACs and I hate, you know, money in politics and I hate all of these things. I hate it too. But to unilaterally disarm means that we give them the ability to run roughshod over us again and again and again and again and again. And so, um, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Absolutely painful. But absolutely, we still have to continue to participate in these systems until we win the power to change those systems. Right? That's what I'm for. So I'm not going to white shame you. <laughs> I didn't feel shamed so much as like, oh, this is this is a thing that I hadn't I hadn't considered that I, part of it. I feel it. I feel and it. And it's also it. just true, like the extent to which you can sh- you can't shame someone into voting. I totally agree. It, it hadn't you know? worked. Yeah, it, it, like it, you, it has to be. I think um, it can be. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, it's not revenge exactly, but like the sense of like we're going to show them. Oh yeah. I, I, like my mother used to tell me before I would get disciplined. I can show you better than I can tell you. <laughs> Uh, I don't, but this I'm idea that like that we, to, they're trying to yeah. rig the game and we have to, you gotta, you gotta show up and, and like defend even your Even if turf. the game is rigged, we can't even stop Even if playing. it's rigged and, and, until we are able to unrig it. Yeah. Um, and by the way, this is not a game that black people are unfamiliar with or not used to every day. <laughs> we all, you know, folks get up, go to work, labor under a system that wasn't built for you. 
uh, endure uh, structural barriers that nobody seems intent on deconstructing other than giving lip service to it. Um, but you get up every day and you persist anyway, you know, through it. And so um, it's, it's um, not the ideal way to go. Ideally, you know, we were, you, said, you and I were talking before, ideally, all we all want is to be able to experience the same base level set of problems that the other one has, right? And what, and to take that to its next, you know, extension, um, as a dad to three kids, um, the burden I want is for my kid to have a regular day at school and have whatever the regular conflict is that any other regular kid might experience. I don't want to have to talk to my child about what it means uh, to have his color skin and what it means to incur, encounter law enforcement who may be suspicious of you just because of the way you look not because of any action that you've done. So we're just fighting for the ability to have the same problems everybody else has. It is time to talk about the show sponsor, Rothy's. If you have listened to the show before, you've heard me talk about Rothy's. They are the shoe made out of recycled water bottles, and they are completely machine washable, something that I have become especially grateful for here in what is becoming the slush season in Minnesota. It's when it gets kind of cold enough to snow, but not quite, and it rains a lot, and there's all this construction around my house, and there's never a time to have washable shoes like this time. Perhaps you don't have slush season in your city, um, but it's still really great to be able to wash these incredibly comfortable shoes. That's, of course, the other thing about them. They have a few different styles, including a new slip-on sneaker style. They come in a lot of different designs and patterns, and you're going to want to check in on their website pretty often because those designs and patterns sell out. They're the perfect everyday shoes for life on the go. They're stylish and comfortable. They go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They have the official seal of approval, or perhaps I can't say that for legal reasons, but friends of the show who are real-life activists tell me they wear Rothy's all the time to do their marching. You will quickly discover why BuzzFeed calls them their forever shoes. Check out all their amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash WFLT. That's rothys.com WFLT. When it comes to shopping for clothes online, most of us are... Well, it says here amateurs. I like to think of myself as a professional because I do it so often, but it is also true that I know myself and I just buy the same things all the time. I have so many blue and black sweatshirts. And that is one of the reasons I use Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is a stylist service that will push you out of your comfort zone if you want to be pushed. It is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. It is something of a joke these days that when I'm reading this ad, I am usually wearing something from Stitch Fix. And I believe, yes, I am wearing something from Stitch Fix today. It is a pair of skinny washed black jeans. And I always say the reason I'm wearing it is because these are my going out of the house clothes, um, which I just don't do very often. So it's nice to have someone else dress me. There was an article recently about Stitch Fix that I saw that the algorithms it uses to figure out what kind of clothes that you might want are based on some kind of like NASA programming. I don't know if that is truly the case. I, I don't know if I'm remembering correctly. I do know that I've tried out other subscription services, and Stitch Fix just keeps being the best one. I don't know if it's an algorithm that's choosing for me or an actual person, but it's doing a good 
job. Get started at Stitch Fix today. At stitchfix.com slash friends, you will get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That is stitchfix.com slash friends. Stitchfix.com slash friends. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. So a a quote from the past. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge tax increases and bankrupting the state. Yeah. So it's familiar. Yeah. That was that was the morning after I celebrated um For those uh, who don't know, that was his opponent. Yeah, I was going to exp- yeah, okay. ex- express this that that's what I woke up to the next morning after the primary election. Uh, I uh, woke up to phone calls of what's your response to what Ron DeSantis said on Fox News this morning. I said, what, but what did he say? I, uh, we don't need to monkey this state up, you know, basically by electing, you know, me governor. And that was just the beginning. You know, it took a, um, you know, it went, it went where it went from there. Yes. Now I bring it up, not just because it's like a ridiculously offensive thing to say, um, but you had such an amazing response, which was, and I don't know if he's racist, but racists think he's racist. Yeah. <laughs> that came... <laughs> that is such an elegant formation. No, that was bacon for a minute. It wasn't my immediate response. Oh. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, you can curse on no, this podcast no, if you want. No, 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 I'm in Texas. We're yeah. reserving that for Beto. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm... Uh, <laughs> Hey, that's uh, that was like. By the, by the way, that's not shade. That that's was, not. That's not shade. That I like that. That was I, I, maybe just a passing frond of Paul. Get out of here. Of that's, shade. It's just like this little breach over us. Yeah. It's not shade. Okay. Anyway, um, no, uh, th- there were so many things that happened that just sort of kept race at the centerfold right. of the conversation throughout the um, throughout the campaign, and. Uh, and in and, and truth, uh, my campaign oftentimes just encouraged me, you know, you just have to stay away from race. You just have to, you know, a- avoid, you know, sort of getting into this thing about race. It pushes people to their sides and even good white people. Um, <laughs> even, <you know. laughs> even good white people? <laughs> it, this is from white people, by the way. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who probably consider themselves pretty good. Good white yeah. people, yes. Right. So, you know, we'll, we'll go to their sides and not be able to see the merit of your argument. <laughs> That's even such a nice way to put it. They'll go to their side. Yeah. I, that I, means their race. We'll rush through that. Because <laughs> I think I think what they were trying to communicate, okay. and right. I'm using no, short, I, yes. I'm using shorthand in some right. ways. I think what they were trying to communicate is, um, you know, uh, what you don't want to do by too early or, um, too vigorously calling out race, um, for the majority of people who may not have observed that to be a racist behavior or racist action, either because they may themselves have done it, um, is you don't want to create the place where you create this division, 
um, uh, where people kind of you know, sort of regret their per <laughs> are you calling me racist by saying such and such and such? And so what I say, and it, there's a lot in that we can dissect oh, it, but we won't. It. Okay, oh, we're going to unpack it. Okay, yeah. But, but I will tell you what I thought um, because I oftentimes didn't necessarily rush toward their responding directly to what it is that was happening on the other side. Um, in my opinion, I knew, first of all, I'm obviously black. Um, and <laughs> we should have established that. Yeah, I'm so yeah. sorry. And like, for the not podcast like, audience, yeah. Like lightweight black. I'm like black, black, right? And so there was no way like people weren't going to look at me and see that. And so what, <laughs> what I was trying to, what, what I didn't want to happen was this I didn't want race or the question of it to sit in the recesses of a voter's mind. Um, in a way that it would govern their actions without their awareness. And so when I would talk about race, particularly as I traveled to rural parts of the state and to really white areas of my state, um, is, you know, I might have a joke about something or another that might, you know, have some a bit of a racial tinge just to let them know that it's okay to laugh. I'm not that we're not about to enter the oppression Olympics. Uh, I just want you to, you know, I want to establish some sense of commonality. And then it was as simple as we want the same things, right? My mother and father got up every day. My mother was a school bus driver. And my dad was a bricklayer, a construction worker. When we had summer school in there, the summers and, and Florida got rid of summer schools, my mother became a presser in the dry cleaners. They got up every single day to try to keep a roof over our head and food on the table and clothes on our backs, just like I assume your mama and daddy are doing. And um, at a more base level, um, you want better for your kids, just like I want better for my children. And even if my children's lived experiences are different than yours, the ambitions that we have for parents of our kids are similar. And the idea was for me to say, there's a lot more that we got shared than what divides us either superficially or structurally. And maybe you ought to give me a chance to try to go and fix that for all of us, not just for my kids, but for all of us. And that there would be some mutuality and benefit there. Now, that worked in some places that people could see that. And in other places, it didn't. And the boiling point around race for me came in the debate where my opponent was asked about his associations to uh, a neo-Nazi group that he had spoken for or, or associated neo-Nazi who he had, who had uh, participated in an event with and an online site that he and his wife were accused of curating that sort of traded in racist um, stuff that he apparently didn't know he was the curator of. Sometimes, it, I saw, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, it's so crazy. It is all real. Yeah, that- It happened. yeah. And he's he's the governor now. He is, and um, he's and anyway. he just maybe ran a neo-Nazi website. Well, but Trump is president. And he yeah, absolutely no, is a true. racist, yeah. and so you know we that's the that's the reality. This is America. Okay, but so the, I interrupt the story. So in the debate, the debate this he's was, asked about right. it, and he responds um, by saying, "Well, what the hell do I know about my such and such as past and what he's involved in?" And the moderator starts to sort of, you know, go in, you know, not go in on him, but sort of forces explanation. And he has this explosive moment. And I sort of had this reality check moment. I look really quickly over at him like, did he just say, what the hell do I? You know, I was like, <laughs> I wish I could get away anyway um, 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 uh, with it. And then I said, listen, I, I, I ain't calling Ron DeSantis a racist, but I'm just saying the racist think he's racist. And that 
took a life of its own. Um, and I will tell you, there were folks who, who said that that was very costly for me in the election in this statewide televised debate, um, that it set, you know, the argument of it, it, uh, it really gave a lot of fuel to, um, people to his who, folks. <laughs> I wouldn't change it, uh, by the way, yeah, I don't okay. care what fuel but, it gave, yeah. I wouldn't change it. So what's so elegant about that formulation is that it avoids this weirdly controversial thing that white people have about being called a racist. Mm-hmm. Like you, you sort of sidestep it in a really elegant way. I have said that being called a racist is like white people's kryptonite. Like it's just, it's terrifying, mm-hmm. you know, um, maybe kryptonite isn't even the right word because it doesn't make us weaker. In some ways, it has the opposite effect, right? But it's this really terrifying thing. People just worry a lot about it. Um, There's a whole essay about how many times Trump invokes, there's not a racist bone in my body. No, it's the whole thing. He's right. Yeah. That's all of it. And also the body mass ratio. (laughs) I don't know how much the bones count. It's it's even in the tie. And it's a forever tie. But I just wonder, and so you did call Trump a racist. And I just wonder if... There, we want to say it again. Well, no, it's real. Okay, yeah, no, it's yeah. it's it's very real. Yeah. So, it is this really delicate thing for some people. Yeah. Do you think we should be more bold? People who want to work to disrupt racism, who want to be anti-racist, yeah, are not yet mutual friend. Ibram Kendi has said in his book How to Be an Anti-Racist that there's no such thing as not racist. There are only racists and anti-racist. Yeah. You're either working for it or working against yeah. it. So do those of us who want to be anti-racist, should we be more bold? I, it, I Especially perhaps white people. I, I was about to say, I think white people <laughs> should talk to white people All right. about get, it. Get our people. No, I think we ought to have an inner community. We don't all know each other. And I, <laughs> touche, touche. So we actually, gotta, there's a secret network. Yeah, I know it. I know it. <laughs> I've always thought so. No, it's okay. I, I, I think it is, um, it is a courageous conversation at a time. I mean, y'all, y'all have heard the stories and maybe you've experienced it yourselves. Like the Thanksgiving dinner after election in a lot of white families and not just white families. I mean, I mean, we were didn't near dead. We laid out in my household. We were <laughs> could not believe. I don't know if I had come out the couch yet post the election night, but um, um, was really challenging for a lot of folks and some people. And there were some interviews. There were articles I had read about um, women, particularly white women, basically saying, "I just want peace in my house." And so some of the difficult conversations were avoided out of a desire to just have some... Can't we just eat pie? Yeah, can't we just eat pie? Whatever that is. (laughs) But I actually don't think that's okay. Um, Because I actually don't get the luxury of a break off from difficult conversations uh, at my house. You know, as they come up, you have to deal with them. Um, And frankly, I'm guessing every household has their own set of issues that they have to deal with and work their way through. We got to put racism and race on the menu of some of those difficult things that we've got to work our children. Because the, the most, I tell you, I, I get most agitated and most depressed about race every time one of these campus events happens in the news of the kids in blackface again, and they've got the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, there's that. Yeah. yeah, there's that too. 
But because I keep thinking, oh, well, this generation, this is where the, you know, the difference ends up getting made. And then you see the comments and you see the, uh, the events and it just starts again. I'm thinking, when do we disrupt this cycle? Who's talking to you about this? Why is it that these same mistakes continue to be made? And maybe they're not mistakes. Maybe it is just who you are. The woman who walked out of the store the other day, you all may have seen the online video. She's, you know, she, I hate niggers. And then she gets out to the car and, you know, if I could, I'd kill every uh, nigger, but the law won't allow it. And then she issues an apology the other day. <laughs> Yesterday comes out thinking, what are you apologizing for? Like, I get, I see you. When someone tells you who you are, they, you they believe are. Them, you believe you. them, thank yeah. you. Uh, and, 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 and we got Maya Angelou to thank for, you know, that glorious quote. But I was thinking, how do you go from that level of hate to like two days later, they didn't got your tag number and they call your job. <laughs> And have told, you know, have confronted your boss about whatever it is that you, that, that horrible display. There's no evolution in that. And I just want to get people to have some evolution. By the way, most people aren't there. Most people aren't shouting. I hate, you know, whatever. It would be almost, I mean, like I said, if we all just wore name tags or something, so you know who the real racists were, that would be helpful. So I will tell you in the South, we're practically there. Like we know. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, every day I want, I know that one. I know that, you know, yeah. so, you know whatever. But the, the point being is I actually, I, I hope to offer an invitation. Who am I to offer one, but on my own behalf for folks to actually have their own evolution on this. Like, I don't think you can be judged forever by your worst day. I don't think you should be judged forever by your worst sentiment that you've ever had. Because if the truth had to be told and somebody got your cell phone and were able to read publicly through the last five messages that you sent to the last five friends, there may be something in there that that is a little cringeworthy if it were put on the front pages of a paper or read back to your friends and they may not feel so right about what was said. That's not conflating it with race or racism or sexism. What I'm saying about it is on the issue of race, if we don't give people a pathway forward if, if we don't, in my opinion, encourage folks to have the kind of conversations amongst themselves and amongst each other that have to be had, where do we go from right. there? I don't know where we go from there if I got to you know, judge you forever by the fact that at one point you had a hostile thing. But just to circle back to yeah. who should be having these conversations, like maybe in an ideal world, this woman's anti-racist white friends, hopefully there's one I hope so. In her life. Yeah. Is the one to have this conversation. Or, 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 or a group. I just, this is what I don't want. I keep being very frustrated. And we should take that ourselves. I mean, and I, I mean, don't mean to say like that. It's, it's, if you consider yourself on as part of the movement, yeah. this is part of your responsibility. Your this is part of your work is to yeah. take care of your own people. The, 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 move, the, the movement or humanity. Yeah. Um, if you consider yourself a decent, respectable part of humanity, um, then I think we should take responsibility for being human with each other. And that means allowing people to, you know, helping to lower the barrier to entry to this conversation to starting with one and then let's grow, you know, let's grow beyond that. What I am not an advocate for is I'm not an advocate for black people or people who have been historically oppressed having to educate everyone through the conversation. That's what I'm not in favor of. That's what I'm not in favor of. It's burden enough right. to then take on the added burden 
of like all the things that are insecure about you and the conversation and me having to, yeah, I was, I'll give you an example. Nowhere near the depth that it needs. But I remember right after the race, people coming up to me and like literally crying on my shoulder, like, I don't know how we're going to go forward. And I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I'm thinking, man, I just lost. I don't, <laughs> I'm still grieving with this thing. And now I got to carry you over. You know, it's just, it's, <laughs> that's a very selfish thought. I'm sorry. I just needed it in that moment. But it's sort of like, uh, uh, what are we going to do about racism? And, Were these white people? <laughs> yes. Okay. It's All right. it's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so... We only have a few minutes before we get to audience questions, and I did promise that we're going to talk about something other than the governor's race. So um, I was either going to ask about the future of the Democratic Party or college football. Can I get an audience poll? Future Democratic Party. (laughs) Come on, come on. All right, we'll do football later. (laughs) All right. Okay. There's one football fan I see. Thank you. You can come join us (laughs) after the show. College or professional? Florida Gators. All right. <laughs> okay. okay. We should talk about politics. Yeah, we should talk about politics. <laughs> <laughs> so and then let's go to future Democratic Party because what I found interesting about that DeSantis quote is that there are probably some Democrats that heard that quote and thought that the word socialist was also a problem. I don't know if you're paying attention to the current Democratic primary. Eh. Um, A little bit. Yeah. Anyway, there seems to be, the pundits at least believe, that this is a referendum on the nature of progressivism, the nature of the Democratic Party, like where it should go in the future. Should it embrace things that are, for some reason, considered far left, but although often supported by a majority of American people, um, like universal health care, that kind of thing. And I will point out that I feel like every year or so someone, a pundit says this is a referendum on the, <laughs> on the future Democratic Party. For instance, your race. Yes. Well, I mean. As a pejorative, not, yeah. as, not in its technical term, but as a pejorative. Right. And it dim- dismissed. And there was some punditry after the race that was like, this just goes to show you. Although, again... Although, facts be, uh, if I were, in, in the pejorative sense, we got closer than any of their mainstream conservative Democrats had in 24 years of running for governor. So, and turned out more voters. So does this, and, and, and I think the other context for that is that Florida is an incredibly representative state in terms of, like, we used to talk about Ohio being a place that was the bellwether for the country. But in terms of demographics... Florida is really something that like, that's what at least the future of America is going to look like. (laughs) More tan. And I actually also was going to talk to you about the the Florida man meme at some point, because I feel like it's, it's, Anyway, uh, anyway I, well, it's a little racist. Because I'm trying to run again. It's actually, so I, I don't want to. Like, I think it's a little racist. Get from my state. Because it's like this, it's always like, not racist against white people, but it's the, the stereotypical, it's a white person. Usually, yeah. It's, and they're doing something stupid, but which maybe is representative. I don't know. But um, it's like a weird thing. Like, that's what we think of when we think of Florida. But actually, Florida does not look like that. 
you know, you uh, can see that's her here as a good politician. Yeah, you can be like, yes. Of, a lot of Florida uh, lacks what I think people think of as Florida. And almost everybody I meet someplace else, they go, and I say, I live in Florida. Like, oh, Miami? I'm yeah. like, no, Miami is actually one county at the very, very bottom of the state. And there are 68 others. Um, to give you an example, there's 67, uh, uh, there are, um, Oh Lord, there's 66 others. There's 67 counties totally in the state of, in total in the state of Florida, and I think I won 11 of them, 10 of them. I mean, it, it, it that gives you a sense of what the rest of the state uh, is like. And even though there only won a handful of them, we were 33,000 votes separated. So a bunch of the diversity of our state is compressed. And very, very, very small parts of it. I would also say that this is also representative of the country. Well, for sure. Yeah, the same this deal. is like what. Post and. Yeah. But let's circle back to the future of the Democratic Party. Do you feel like you can have any, have a helpful point of view on that? I mean, do you think that your, the popularity that of your policies, the fact that you came so close, should that be an argument? that Democrats, let's say just maybe specifically Democratic pundits, I don't know, should be more brave or politicians too, be more bold in embracing some of these policies. I, I, I just wish we as Democrats stopped being afraid of our own shadow. It's like we can't impeach him because the Republicans will get angered by it. Are you kidding oh, me? Oh, no. Do they need more anger? I mean, do they need another motivation? I mean, for for because if we don't anger, impeach them, they'll be happy they'll, and they'll work with and us. They'll vote for us. Yes. Okay. Right. Um, right. So we were going to let this guy continue to run lawless, mm. not just over the country but over the globe, apparently, um, and not hold them accountable. I, I think my my uh, pastor puts it in these terms: um, we need more thermostats and fewer thermometers. And little brain trick, right? We got to think of what the role is of these two instruments. Um, the thermometer um, clearly tells the temperature. Any of us can do that. You get a thermometer and you tell me what the temperature is in this room. Um, but it takes a very, very, very few, you know, a brave and courageous group of people who can set the temperature, who are willing to go there before people get there. And lead instead of just being led. And in this case, it's actually the exact opposite. The people are already where the leaders are not. Um, the, the people are further out there or you know, further progressed on these issues than many of, of where our leaders are. And so the argument against my candidacy for governor in the Democratic primary, and again, I came through a five-person race where I raised and spent $6 million to my four opponents who spent a combined over $90 million in the race for governor. Um, we, you know, nobody Did the millionaires thought, split the vote? Is that the... Uh, well, two of them <laughs> got 30% together. Uh, and anyway, anyway, the math was what it was. It, it, the, the point being, like, people spoke, yeah. right? Money didn't speak in that instance. People stood up and they were like, yeah, I hear what you're saying about them. Yeah, I hear that you don't think that his policies can win. Unfortunately, that is what is moving me. Well, just so happens, that's what moved 4 million other people and got us closer than we ever had in the last 24 years. And I believe it's put us at the doorstep of flipping Florida blue in the 2020 presidential election. That's what I think. That's what I think. So more bold, 
more bold, more courageous, more unapologetic about what we believe. One of the things that I encountered the best in some of the Republican areas I visited, I had people come up to me and say, I don't really believe in what you necessarily believe in, but I believe you believe it. And I respect that. So people don't always have to necessarily agree with you at the end of the day to even vote for you. That's an odd thing. But if they got milk toast over here, Miss Weathervane over here, not you. (laughs) Right. So, you know, people make those kinds of choices. People aren't stupid. And they also this is the formula they did is they like, you know what, if we elect Gillum governor, Republicans still have the house. He still has to work with them in order to get it done. But at least maybe there'll be some pressure. Right. So people we, we discount the fact that people actually go through these machinations every single day. Um, how do I make way, make do with what it is that I have? And so let's trust the voters uh, on this thing um, and stop getting, you know, stop being in our own way. Get out of our own way. Stop being afraid of our shadow. Just do the damn thing you were sent there to do and see if it's the right thing based off of how it is we reward you or punish you. I will. That's not physical harm or okay. abuse. Okay, good. Um, yes, just electoral, right? That's electoral. Um, I think again, I wanted to kind of get, gauge your optimism, but I can tell you're an optimist. I am, yeah. I, so yeah. <laughs> I want to just we'll close our conversation on that. We have just a few minutes for questions. Yeah. We have we have microphones. So yeah, I wanted to ask about a specific policy area that ends up having an effect on uh, the issues we've been talking about. As you know, Florida has a first-generation matching grant program for uh, college students. And in the last legislature, Texas tried to pass one of those but failed. I'm curious with the 2020 election going on, how you think the federal government could best assist states with making college more affordable? Well, I think they could start at the federal level on helping to make college more affordable and debt-free. And I think we've got some candidates who are obviously offering some, you know, some methods uh, on how we're doing that. The whole the, the the whole system, and I, I feel a particular angst on this because I just had to become the co-signer on my sister's student loan. Uh, uh, this year. I was like thirty thousand for what? You know, was, yeah. <laughs> this is per what four years? She's like, no, that's each semester. That's the semester uh, uh, deal, right? I ain't tell my wife about this yet, by the way, so she'll learn. <laughs> Find out on learn on, okay, in two weeks, I'll get it done before, uh, before then. But I, can you imagine? I mean, that is, well, you can't imagine because many of you are either saddled with it or you have a relative or a child um, who is saddled with that kind of debt. Um, I'm a fan of, quite frankly, a number of the proposals that we've seen out there from the progressive end of the spectrum um, that are seeking to provide some deep relief uh, to individuals and to families and to students who are experiencing just radical out of control. And I can't stand when I, well, I, I did it. I went to school and this is 30, 40 years ago. And I'm thinking, yes, but it was a fraction of what it is today. And it doesn't make any sense. Milk hasn't appreciated at that level. It's certainly <laughs> not my income. Yeah. Yeah. The cost of education and my indebtedness, it just doesn't make any sense. The we, system is not working. And our priorities. I mean, we, right. we, we don't ask questions about how much wars cost. Not so whatever. Um, I see you have a mic. I would love if a, a person who is not a man <laughs> had a question. Okay. So I actually just came up with this whenever she asked for a woman. So, um, okay. So... As an aspiring politician, I hope to run for office one day. Mm -hmm. And I'm not rich 
like you were talking about um, however many members of Congress. Um, 138 are millionaires, 50 senators. Oh, okay. I have like $5 in my bank account. Um, Anyways, so I was just wondering, like, it gets really discouraging sometimes to see this go on around you and, you know, kind of rich people, you know, take over our government. Um, What advice would you give to someone that's hoping to run for office and isn't rich? Well, can I first say, like, shout out for even being courageous to step into your own aspiration. A lot of people sit on it. They surrender it. They're embarrassed by it. They don't give it breath. Um, You've taken an important first step by saying, I want to be a leader. I want to serve. Secondly, I have to tell you, I ran when I was 23 years old. The first election I ran, I ran for a citywide city council seat in Tallahassee, Florida. And the constituency at the time of my, of the seat of this, of the, of the city was almost 70% white. Um, no one thought I had a chance and I raised $6,000, 6 million for governor, 6,000 in this race, which I thought was a lot of money. And I did what anybody with $6,000 who was 23 would do. I bought everybody I knew a t-shirt, uh, <laughs> every friend, every, just walking billboards everywhere, all 6,000 on t-shirts. Um, are you serious? I'm very serious. Oh, wow. <laughs> The, the, the truth is good enough. There's no need to lie. Uh, we $6,000 on T-shirts. And I had an opponent in the general election who had raised and spent $149,000. And we ended up beating him in the race uh, for city council, having raised an additional 30000 after I became, um, uh, came in the, uh, the top two. Uh, to make me the youngest person in Tallahassee's history to be elected to the city commission. And what that took uh, was simply, you know, a heart to care enough and a willingness to work. And I went around and talked to people. And the truth is, is that the biggest audience who was receptive to me were older voters. They were like, we need younger people. I think they were just excited. I wasn't, I don't know, gangbanging or something. They were just, <laughs> I was like, I, 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 I may have aggressed or microaggressed. I don't really know. Against, so it, it, I was excited to be, have a young person talk to them, take them serious. There's a bunch in that, right? But they were extremely excited to give me a chance. And so one, you're enough right where you are. You don't need the validation of anybody else to tell you how much you don't have, what uh, degree or whatever you came from. What, what your mother or your father do for a profession. You embody all you need right now um, to go forth and, and to do what it is that you want. And money won't be a, a, a limitation, will not be the determining factor for you. Right, Can I ask you a question? Yes. Do you know if there's any elections coming up at local level where you are? Um, locally, we actually just had city council elections. And um, I'm actually, I think in... I don't know. Actually, in March, I think we have elections. Probably legislative. You should maybe look into running for something. <laughs> and and just maybe. so you're not embarrassed around the timeline, yeah. I decided to run 32 days before the actual election. So go yeah. do your thing. Yeah. 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 All right. <laughs> Thank you. No offense, but I'm so glad I asked for a non-dude. That was awesome. <laughs> um, but dude. Hi. 
And you're also going to be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. But you I don't need to be told you're awesome. Probably. Yeah, so. I actually that was yeah that was a yeah. good uh, yeah thank you that was a good um, question thank you so um, and thank you for being here. Um, I have a question about um, how you can take kind of the lessons that and the the tactics that you're using in Florida and scale them and adapt them to either other state contexts or federal contexts um, and how that can kind of be. Um, you know, we can take some of the lessons that you're putting into place right there uh, and, and use them more yeah. broadly. Yeah, where we're trying to, uh, first I want to say, uh, I, my principal focus is on flipping Florida. I think Florida and probably Texas uh, are two states who can by themselves deny Donald Trump a second term. By ourselves. So that's become, that's become priority number one. But I started an organization um, 15, 12 years ago or so, oh no, almost uh, 13 years ago called the Young Elected Officials Network. And it's a group of elected officials who self-identify as progressive and they're between the ages of 18 and 35. And when I began that group, I was a young elected myself. And the impetus for it was that I was so sick of going to these conferences with elected officials and being you know, mistaken for wait staff or, you know, it's like, son, I got shoes and socks older than you. And I was like, you should get new ones. But <laughs> either way, uh, these were not folks who were doing and talking about the things that I was interested in. So we just created our own space. And in our inaugural class of young elected officials where I convened these folks, uh, we had Julian Castro, uh, Joaquin Castro, Kirsten Cinema. Who's now a member of the United States Senate from Arizona. We had Alicia Thomas Morgan from Georgia. She was different then. Um, we had Alicia Thomas Morgan from Georgia. We had Clementa Pinckney, who was the state senator and the reverend of a mother Emanuel church. Uh, and South Carolina was a member of that inaugural class. Um, and folks who are right now running for offices all around the country and doing amazing things. That cohort has now grown to a group of over a thousand uh, around the country. And part of the legacy of, of that is that we continue, and I personally continue to help train um, and provide personal training myself to those individuals so that we grow more elected officials who, you know, as I told them, we didn't choose young just because of age. We chose young because we thought you were not going to be as bought and sold by the process, um, that people were not going to own you on day one and hopefully day zero, never. Um, and that maybe you would be a little bit more courageous and willing to try things differently. That's why young. Um, and truth is, I was like, either through your courage or naivete, you were going you know, get out there and do some things that others were not willing and prepared to do. And so I think part of my contribution is trying to continue to get out there and recruit and train uh, and support. And between now and 2020, very principally in Florida, uh, uh, by, by registering and engaging a million voters, to turn Donald Trump into a retired, well, before that, I hope he gets retired. But we're going to create a fail safe, which will be the election of 2020 and Florida flipping blue. Cross to fingers. Go. Texas, yeah. too. Why not? That is unfortunately all the time we have. There it is. All right. Thank you guys so much. Now this was fantastic. To say goodbye. Great questions. Great audience. Awesome, y'all. Thank you. We all know how important it is to eat healthy. I've become more and more aware of this as I've gotten older. But the reality is nine out of 10 people don't eat enough veggies. That is indeed my weakness. I eat tons of fruit. I love fruit, but I don't eat enough veggies. 
So I do sometimes turn to supplements. And the latest one I've been using is a new sponsor, Your Super. Michael and Crystal, the founders of Your Super, discovered firsthand how important nutrition is to health. They are professional tennis players. They were happy, healthy, and active on and off the court. After Michael was diagnosed with cancer, Crystal started making superfood mixes to help him rebuild his immune system. They saw the impact that superfood mixes had in improving his health, and they knew they needed to share it with the world. So Your Super is on a mission to improve people's health with the power of super plants. They make it easy, like incredibly, you know, one scoop at a time, easy for you to get nutrients your body needs to thrive. Their functional superfood and plant protein mixes are made from naturally dried organic whole foods and superfoods and nothing else. And this is actually what I really like about it. They have a 100% transparency supply chain. You know you're getting the cleanest superfood mixes on the market. You may not be able to control everything in your life, but you can control what you eat. And I've made a practice of incorporating these superfoods into my daily routine. I cannot attest to a like night or day change, but I do feel better about myself. And also it's been, it's been forcing me to kind of think more intentionally about what I eat. And I also have been creating smoothies out of these things. And I definitely am using more vegetables in general. I like the super green mix, which is just fair warning, very, very green. And also the power matcha mix, which also, if you know, matcha is also green, uh, but not quite as green. And then they do have travel packs that have all of the different kinds in them, which also include Forever Beautiful, which has a chocolatey flavor and the skinny protein mix, which I believe has hemp protein I think it is also green. Um, so I've been basically eating a lot of kale. I make a banana kale smoothie with this stuff that is delicious and I am very certain good for me. So you can try all of these and more. Like I said, the travel pack selection uh, will give you one of each and you can decide which is your favorite. If you go to your super. Dot com, you will get 15% off your first order when you use the offer code FRIENDS. That's YourSuper.com, Y-O-U-R, Super.com, and 15% off with the offer code FRIENDS. Here at Crooked, we are trying to focus some attention on campaigns that aren't getting the coverage that we think they should. Especially with everyone's attention focused on 2020, people forget. We have races that are coming up right here in November of 2019. Lots of important local elections. And that is why Shawnee Curry Mitchell is on the show today. She is running in Monroe County in Rochester, New York, where she served as a prosecutor for 13 years. But as running for DA, she is pushing for more progressive sentencing, ending mass incarceration, and diminishing cash bail. We talk about all those policies or most of those policies in this conversation, but we actually talk a little bit more about the philosophy behind them and her thinking behind the compassion that we should have for those that run afoul of the criminal justice system. I really enjoyed talking to her. Here is Shani Curry-Mitchell. Shani, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I have my first question Maybe it's a simple one. I hope but so. But I am I am completely serious, which is why would anyone in their right mind choose to run for political office here in the year of our Lord 2019? I mean, the costs seem pretty high, mm-hmm. both personally and politically. I ask myself that every day. Um, 
I don't sleep well. I I don't. My house is a mess. Um, I'm not a good wife or oh. or mother right now. I don't believe. Um, but I I found it to be important. I mean, I've been part of the criminal justice system since 1998. I've been practicing in it, and um, and I believe in it. I see where we can be. And we've fallen so short. And when the opportunity arose for me to make the changes here in my hometown, the place where I grew up, um, I had to do it. I'm not a politician. And I, I, I had this naive belief that I could do it different. So I'm coming from um, the outside. And I've never done this before. Now, my father was... Um, a politician, if you if you would, um, he was part of the he was on the board of education here in Rochester for seventeen years back in the eighties and the nineties. But I really didn't know anything about politics. I think I um the most I I would watch it on TV, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, and I, and I I got on a bus in two thousand and eight for Obama and from Atlanta and went to South Carolina and knocked on some doors. I think that was the most I've ever done. But I really believed in. In change, I mean, and I believe I could make a change, but it really is, it's the hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever done besides parenting. Um, mm. But um, I, it, I really believe it was just the belief that I could really make the change that I, I saw and I believed was mm. necessary. And you would have to have that and you have to remind yourself of that every day in order to keep going because I know it's 27 days left and I want to quit Oof. every day. So you mentioned, so you were involved in the criminal justice system prior to this race. Mm -hmm. You were a prosecutor, right? Correct. So, you know, here on the left, sometimes being a prosecutor gets associated with some not great things. Like we tend to think of prosecutors being associated with mass incarceration. You know, Kamala Harris gets called a cop Mm -hmm. for her role. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that reputation is deserved? And, and what do you think about how it relates to you? I think traditionally we, um, as prosecutors, have not risen to or recognize the power that we have for the change that we can be. I think traditionally we have seen us um, ourselves as victim protectors and, you know, protecting community. And I think that as society has evolved, we've recognized the role that we can take as fixing society. And I think that's where we've we've evolved as as a society as it relates to criminal justice. You know, we in the past, we've sent drug addicts and drug dealers um, drug addicts to prison. So now we believe that drug addicts should not go to prison. So we evolve as society. And I think that's the way prosecutors have are, are starting to look at ourselves differently. And so our policies will change and our policies have changed. Now our policies should continue to change. And I don't think that they're changing um, enough in the wake of what we believe um, should be um, our role in the criminal justice system. So we should fix I believe that as prosecutors, we can fix um, offenders so that they we don't create this revolving door of offending. 
And I think that we are evolving and we will continue to evolve. I just think that traditionally we didn't see ourselves as that um, in that role. But I think now it's starting to be accepted um, as part of our job as also also as protectors of of society, but also as fixers of those that are hurting. We do protect society when we address those issues that cause offenders um, to offend. So I think we're, we're getting there. And that's just that's part of why um, I'm out here and um, I'm, I'm making this sacrifice. And so is that sort of social change and shift in how prosecutors even see themselves the biggest change that you want to see in the criminal justice system? Or is there like a more like a, a sort of list of things that you think should change and policy wise? I believe it's it's I think we should see ourselves this way um, socially, um, social mm-hmm. justice. Um, but I, I and, and it incorporates all the various policies that um, go along with it. Um, I so once we look at ourselves different differently, then we will create policies that reflect how we see ourselves. Does that make sense? And what's an example of that? So one of the things that I've been talking about here is that I want a social worker on my staff. Okay. Hmm. So by having a social worker, we can create these individualized plans to address those issues that I talked about, you know, the lack of poverty. Because it's not, a, you can't create a one size fit all plan for anyone, mm-hmm. right? Because we, you know, that there are multiple issues that, um, that cause an, an individual to offend. So I, my thing is, let's, let's create a, a plan of attack. So if someone has been, you know, stealing for a number of years and we keep, you know, give them 30 days in and then they're back and it's 40 days and then it's 60 days. And, you know, just this revolving door, they keep coming back. Let's address those. Let's figure out why is it that they keep coming back? Is it because they they like to steal? Is it a combination of lack of education? They don't believe they can do it. Let's let's create this plan to address all of those issues. So, yes, so a social worker on my staff can work with um the defense attorney, they can work with maybe they already have a caseworker that they have because they are, they've been identified to have some mental health issues already. Let's create a craft, an individualized plan for that offender. And we're talking, we're starting off with low level nonviolent offenders, right? Let's address those because we know that those can um, elevate um, to more aggressive offenders. So let's, let's start with those, mm-hmm. address those issues, create those individualized plans and um, to stop the revolving door. You know, it's interesting. I heard you mention to, to maybe start with nonviolent and proceed to more aggressive kinds of crimes, more, you know, uh, things that might involve property damage or or, mm-hmm. or maybe even violence. And I, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of people, when we talk about criminal justice reform, get caught on kind of the idea that this is about nonviolent crimes. And if we if we address that, then we're going to do a lot towards you know, ending mass incarceration, but you must know better than most people that if we're going to take steps towards ending mass incarceration, you kind of have to take on not just nonviolent offenders, right? Like you have to address everyone that's in the system. We do. We have to, but we have to start somewhere. And, and, yeah. And, right. If we start with, with nonviolent, we can work our way up. We just have to, we have to be smart and we have to look at, 
what programs that work. You know, there are programs out yeah. there across the country. The problem is DA's offices don't talk. Right. Mm. We don't talk with criminal justice practitioners and educators and researchers all all across the country as to, hey, this program we found over here that work with, um, you know, domestic violence batterers. Right. And that's I just had a roundtable discussion. We don't have many of those out there. Right. Those who have start, you know, who have maybe um, are presenting um, domestic violence um, early on. Right? right. We don't have those programs out there. And I heard it with the discussion I had with practitioners in the domestic violence area, it's about if we put money towards batterers, we're taking away from, you know, victims. We they, There's not enough for both. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. So we we the the issue is that there it presents a number of various issues. But the thing is, we we don't talk enough, you know, and share mm-hmm. ideas and share, you know, the successes of these various programs. But we can. I mean, there are there are situations where someone who breaks into a home, right, or mm-hmm. someone who has, you know, um, presented violence to someone, it's a possibility that restorative justice could work in limit in in those situations. It's a case by case basis, and and when those opportunities do arise, we should not be afraid to to utilize them. You know, I'm hearing. In your discussion of this, a kind of radical compassion, you know, this this story uh, of restorative justice and, and the ways that we might begin to implement that in cases that even maybe that, you know, on first glance might seem difficult, but there are opportunities. And I happen to notice in your official bio, it mentions that you're an active member in your church. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that has had an impact on how you view criminal justice. If having a spiritual life is something that informs your view of restorative justice and compassion for people that other people may not have compassion for. I believe that that's part of it, but don't all, you know, understand that part of my story is that my sister was murdered also. Right. Right. So she was beaten, stabbed, to the point where she had no teeth left in her mouth when I visit her in the morgue, okay? And a, a man who claimed to love her in front of my nephews, right? My 16 and 14-year-old nephews. So I also know what it's like to, um, to hurt, to continue to hurt, to want retribution, right? Um, but I also know that a strong faith is something that you have to have, Um as you take these cases on and um, you have to be able to address um, and look at these cases on a case by case basis. But faith is very important. Um, Retribution has its place. Mm-hmm. Incapacitation has its place. And I think because I'm also a professor um, and I've studied, I have a master's in criminal justice, I understand that incapacitation means that we believe that we have to protect society from those who will we believe will harm in the future. I don't think we look at that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. We think that, well, we, we're going to put you away because this is what you've done. No, we need to decide on who we need to put away because we believe they will harm us in the future. And I think mm-hmm. we just have to continue to look at look at the tr- look at um, punishment in, in that sense of, of the word. But I do believe that there are people who need to be put, you know, taken away from society because they will harm us. I just think that right. we need to do a better job at deciding on it. But having the spiritual 
center is very important to me and it does guide me and it's, it's very important. And I would say that having compassion for someone doesn't mean you necessarily don't put them away, right? Like That is correct. I think you can have compassion even if it turns out that the right thing to do is to separate them from society. Right. Right. Like you can still see them as human. I think there's it's important to have a balance. And I think that's also what, what compassion and faith does for me. It, it gives me a, a balance. I can see many sides. And um, also being a person of color, I know what injustice looks like. I know what how it how it it affects and you just and I know what compassion or or the desire for compassion looks like and so having all of that is is a is a very unique lens that I I carry with me um as a prosecutor now I understand you are actually running against your former boss yes I am <laughs> what is that like well I mean, I have this perspective because I am familiar with her policies um, because I worked in the office. So um, I think I'm very um, aware of who she is. So I think it's um, it's interesting to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you've given such frank answers. I suddenly feel like you're now kind of you're kind of weighing your words pretty carefully. <laughs> it's just it's it's good. I, I you know, mm-hmm. um, I I enjoyed m- for the most part being in the office because I mm-hmm. I enjoyed being a prosecutor. I did not enjoy the policies. I did not enjoy right. the atmosphere. It was very different from being in Atlanta. And it didn't feel like a family. We were a family in Atlanta. We worked together, and it was not that here in Monroe County. We we did not mm-hmm. work together. That that's just was my take. She was a different type of um, uh, boss. She was not accessible to um, the workers, and um, mm. we worked under fear. And that's just not oh. the way you work in a, a supervisor office. Yeah, fear can be contagious. It's it's really like a. a I think probably especially bad atmosphere in a prosecutor's office. No one wants to believe, you know, people go to, let me just tell you this. When people go to a district attorney's office, they go to learn to try cases. That's what you go for. You mm-hmm. go to try cases. You mm-hmm. have this belief, I'm going to protect this, protect society. No one wants to be fear, to fear making a mistake. You go to DA's office, you are learning. You're, you're, it's a training ground for, for trial attorneys. No one's perfect. But the fear was if you make a mistake, you're going to get demoted or fired. That's absolutely nuts. And then you mm-hmm. had a district attorney who never came on your floor. You never saw her. You never. She never interacted with you. It, it, was, it, it was the most bizarre place I'd ever been, to say the least. So it sounds like you have a pretty clear vision of, of what you would look like as absolutely. a boss in that situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not to say I'll be a, a would be a perfect boss. I just I just well, no know, one's perfect. No, no one's perfect. But I know the type of atmos- atmosphere of training, support, um, community that I would uh, create for the district attorney's office. You must be part of the community. You must embrace the community. Your office should be um, uh, alive and supportive and working together and everyone believing they have each each other's back and your DA should be visible and door open door policies and things of that nature and just training, training, constant training and support for your staff. That's what it's about. So just a couple more questions. What do you think we can learn 
those of us who you know aren't in your district, obviously, but are watching local elections nationwide, um, because I think there's a lot of welcome interest in off year and and local elections from people not in those communities. What can we learn from from looking at, at elections like yours? That they're important. Um, <laughs> they they are. I mean, people don't especially for DA races, people don't understand the type of power that a district attorney holds, right? Most people don't understand that if a case comes in and we review it and determine that the, you know, the police has done something constitutionally wrong or against state law, we can dismiss it outright without going before a judge or anything else. Mm. And people don't get it. People don't understand it. Somehow they think that the judge is the one who's in charge of our cases. We are. We have the power to say, you know, just to dismiss, withdraw and dismiss cases gone. We are the keepers of justice. And people need to understand that we hold that power and how powerful district attorneys are all across this country. We all have that type of power. So when you elect a district attorney, you have to ensure that the person who holds that power is the right person, that you you believe that they will do the right thing for your county. They are administering justice properly and fairly and equitably. equitably. And so... Um, that's what people need to, to when they're looking at these races, especially these DA races all around. Are those the type of people who should have their have that type of power? That's what I would say. I think that's a, a really good thing to say. And it, it's a probably a nice place for, for us to wind up. I want to say thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you talking. And I it's funny, you when I asked you at the very beginning about the cost of running for office, you said you're not being a, a necessarily the wife or mother you want to be. I bet you're doing a lot better than you think. And I bet your family completely buys into this. I, I, that's just my suspicion. Well, thank you so, so much. I appreciate that. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And that is it for the show. I think it has been some time since I've reminded you to rate and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts. It is a way of helping people to discover the show as well as soothing my often bruised ego, although that's not why you should do it. I also think it's been a while since I've reminded you that you can write the show at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. That's again, withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. I know it hasn't been very much time since I reminded you of this final wish. I remind you once again, please take care of yourselves. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.